0: Turn to Titus, will be in Titus 2. There's a truth that I want to remind you of, and it's that healthy Bible teaching produces the fruit of godly living in the lives of Christians. You know, a true church is comprised of people who are born again, who are believers, and submit to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So last week we saw that a healthy biblical community requires healthy leadership who will hold fast to the truth. Today, we're going to see that healthy teaching should produce healthy living in our lives. Every aspect of our life must reflect the truth of the gospel. And because all of our lives are worship, it should be our whole life that reflects this. Let's go ahead and read Titus 2, 1-10 through together. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering and not showing all, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And Father God, I, uh, I come to the task of Preaching so with such a weakness, Father. I need your strength and your power. I believe in the Holy Spirit, and I believe that you have a word for these people, Father God. So be with me, be with us as we listen to your word. Father God, forgive us our sins and help us to reflect the godly living that you would have us live. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, so let's read verse 1 again. It's a transition statement. Paul just finished his instructions to Titus about the dangers of legalist and false teaching from last week. Remember that? Last week, there was a danger of false teaching. So this week, he says this. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus was to silence the, the false teachers, and then he was to speak. The word here. As for you teach. The word for teach here is actually go on talking. Go on talking about what is fitting for, consistent with, healthy doctrine, healthy teaching. So we used to be speaking about this. You know, I, um, I always sometimes struggle when I read scripture to immediately be able to put any kind of application to it. Have you ever read some obscure passage in scripture and said... I don't really know what to do with this. This is really good. It's a great, great truth. But what do I do with this? Well, the beauty of this passage, and as I've been studying it this week, the beauty of it is it's super practical. Like this is the most practical you could ever get in Scripture. Paul is not holding any punches. and He's telling you exactly how to live. And we ought to remember, though, that this is not just moralism, that we're not just living because we want to live and be perfect in this way. No, we're doing this because out of an overflow of the gospel truth that Jesus died for us. And so I'm going to front load the application. Each of these groups that Paul is addressing are necessary in a healthy community. Each of these groups that we, we read about in uh, chapter 2 are necessary for a healthy congregation. So a biblical community has to have older men, older women, younger generations— it's multi-generational. In order for the members of the body of Christ to fulfill the God-given design for the church, you know there are circumstances where it's not always possible to have all these groups in them. But if we believe the church is God's vehicle to effect change, then our behavior needs to reflect how we view His bride. So with this fix in our mind, we're going to jump into the text and we're going to explore the specifics given to each group of people it says older men so older men are addressed in the context of the text is an emphasis on more aged men men who are a bit older so it's not the same older men as in elders that were mentioned in Titus 1 it's a different root word but it's older men are to be sober-minded dignified self-controlled sound in faith in love and in steadfastness so, sober-minded, dignified, self-control. And then under self-control, you see sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Sober-minded, in other, version, other versions, you may have a version that translates as temperate or self-controlled. And often this term is used to mean moderate or free from excess. From excess passions or rashness. Restrained in conduct. So I will let you guys think practically. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Dignified. Another version uses the term worthy of respect. Or perhaps we could say respectable in behavior. The teaching of the gospel drives us to live lives that are worthy of respect. And then we go into self-controlled again. Self-control, this is a different word from the sober-minded, even though it's similar in connotation. It's also used for younger women and younger men. So this word for self-control is used for all the groups mentioned here. And to be sound in the faith, love, and endurance. So when you read this, you don't really see this in the English translation, but self-control has three explanations as to what self-control is. So when you see self-control, you can almost put a little parentheses around sound of the faith in love and in steadfastness. And what it's saying here is to be self-controlled means that an older man should be self-controlled in his faith. He should be self-controlled in love and self-controlled in endurance or steadfastness. He should desire healthy teaching, pure teaching, and the right teaching, which should lead his emotions to embrace the truth that that he believes, loving what is good and rejecting the bad, causing him to choose to endure struggles and pain for the sake of belief and love, not taking the easy wrong over the hard right. An older man who is in a healthy congregation or a healthy biblical community, should display these previous characteristics. After older men, Paul turns then to older women. An integral member in every church is its older women. Older women are truly, truly a gift to our church. Older women are the gift to the church. So let's see what Titus is supposed to teach The older women to do. So, number three, it says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Because he uses the word likewise, it's easy to understand that he's saying not only must older women reflect what he told the older men to be sound in the faith and to be self controlled, but they are also to do these things. So, this is an addition. And it says, it's to remind us that what is required of the older men are also to be required of the, of, the, uh, of the older men is required for the older women. Older women, just like older men, are to be godly examples. And then Paul lists very specific examples. And you, you would think that maybe the people in Crete struggle to grasp this, con- this concept. He says this, they need to be reverent in behavior. In the same way that older men are to live lives reflective of the truth that is taught, so also older women are to live holy lives. The word for reverent reflects that of a priest going about their duties. So an older woman, yeah, I went way too fast. I just messed up that. Okay. So an older woman is to be reverent in their behavior. They're supposed to be holy. And their behavior, kind of like a priest going about his business. Older women are to treat others as a priest would do while performing their most holy tasks. Then Paul lists two common sins that are not reflective of holy living. So the same thing that we did with the older men, he has some two subcategories when he talks about younger or older women. He says they are to be reverent in behavior, which means not slanderers. Which means, not slaves to much wine. So what is a slanderer? A slanderer is someone who verbally assassinates someone's character. Someone who is a slanderer is someone who is assassinating someone else's character. It's a manipulative attempt to hurt others with their words. This is obviously something that is not in keeping with the holy lifestyle. In fact, the term for slander is one of the names used to describe the devil. Diabolos. Satan is the ultimate slanderer, and he showed his true colors in the Garden of Eden when he said, did God really say this? And why, why would God not want you to be as as holy as him, as perfect as him? Why would God not want you to have the knowledge that he has? And so just like in the Garden of Eden, Satan slandered God, so slandering is not fitting for older women. then, not slaves to wine. It's the second part, aspect of what's not befitting to older women. It must be likely that Paul, in Paul's day, older women were likely prone to be drinkers. As we've heard about the Cretans, they were prone to drunkenness. And so maybe it's because they had more access while they were home to the wine. I don't know. But what we do know is Being a slave to wine, being a slave to addiction, is a very vivid image of what it looks like to be addicted to something. It says you're a slave to that item, a slave to wine. So women, and really everybody, but maybe this is a particular problem. A person who drinks too much wine can be a, sorry about that, let me go back. The image here is very vivid, a slave to wine, What too much wine and drink can do to a person is it chains you to the bottle. It's like chaining you to the bottle. So any type of addiction is chaining you to something. You know, sometimes um, our generation has different sins than the generation before them. Some, Some generations will be a slave to something different than somebody else. Some people are addicted to the news. Some people are slaves to their phones. Some people are a slave to Facebook or Instagram. And so we have to be careful not to condemn their sin and accept our own sin. And so what he's saying to these older women is that this is slavery. And what's the only solution to being enslaved or in bondage to sin? It's Jesus Christ. So a reverent woman, a woman who lives a reverent life, a priestly life, should not be a slave to anything, much less alcohol. So while older women are to be these exemplary, exemplary examples, because of the gospel, they also have a vital role in the church. They are to teach what is good, which trains younger women. The church needs women of the Bible. We need women who are consummate students of God's word. I read a really heartbreaking article the other day, and it was, it was called A Tale of Two Women, or A Tale of Two Teaching Women, something like that. And this lady was describing how she went to this woman's conference. And at the conference, they had two speakers. They had this older lady who came and expressed all her – that she had been a missionary and that she had served the church and that she was praying for the younger generation. And she spoke in such a way that it was evident that she lived and breathed the scripture. And then there was another woman. She was much younger, and she was funny. She had all the jokes. She talked about all the famous people that she met. She talked about all the books that she had written, and she had all these stories that were just fun. And then occasionally she would jump into the Bible and pull out a passage, throw it out there, but then go back to telling stories about herself. And this woman was, was just really saying that this is, this is heartbreaking that a woman, that these two women are so different. And then not only that, at the end of the conference, you know where you have your, your table, you have your books there, and they sign them or you can go take pictures with them. The younger woman's table… Was, had a line all the way out the door where the older woman only had a few people that would come up and she would hold them and pray with them and walk through their, their sorrows with them. And she said, this is what's wrong today is that our younger generation not only doesn't have these models, they don't seek after these models. So for an older woman to be this example of God's word, younger women must be receptive of learning from older women. Younger women are to seek out older women to teach them what is good. The typical family situation of that day is that most younger women would be married, and there was very little singleness um, for young women. And uh, so Paul is directing this to the majority of younger women, which were married women. Which is not to say that he doesn't have anything in in, in it for single women, because there's a lot here for us, but... Paul is saying that younger women need to reflect this. And it says, let's turn. go ahead and turn to verse 4. And it said, so to train the young women to love their husbands and children. Now, as I was studying this passage, I thought this was kind of odd. I was like, why would a mom or an older woman have to teach a younger woman to love uh, their children? family. Why would they have to do that? That's kind of odd. And uh, as I studied it and the more I I went into it, it it said that to love their husbands and children, that is to be husband lovers and children lovers. The way that this is done is by being self-controlled and pure or prudent. So as you read more down into five it says to so to train women to love their husbands and children, verse 5 says to be self-controlled pure working at home. So the way in which a younger woman loves their family is by being these things, self-controlled. They are to be prudent or pure. That is the example of the older holy woman that is to be followed in the younger women so they can love their children and husbands well. And uh, this, this passage, was, I think, was particularly interesting because it's so countercultural To our our society today. Because it says that this woman is to be a homemaker or working in the home. What does that mean? Does that mean that as a homemaker she doesn't work or make money outside the home? I think that would fly in the face of Proverbs 31, which talks about the wise woman who considers a field and buys it. So I don't think that's what he has in mind here. But what I can tell you. In my life, being at my house right now, if you were to come into my house, you would think that it was a hurricane or a disaster. hit, right? Because my wife hasn't come from Texas yet to help me manage the small details of the home. For some reason, my wife is much more suited to manage certain parts of the aspects of the home that I can't manage. And so for her to be a homemaker doesn't mean that she doesn't work outside the home, but that she has a particular interest the care and welfare of the home. So what does that mean? Let's let's, let's study it a little bit more. A younger woman is to be characterized by her love for her family through her efforts in the home. Through her efforts at home. And then there's there's kindness. She's to be kind. I'm going to probably just skip that because I think it's pretty self-explanatory what it means to be kind. And then let's look at the other countercultural term used here. Alright, it says show yourselves don't expect to be a model of good work oh, sorry, going back up to verse 5 working at home, kind and here, here here's the bombshell and submissive to their own husbands. Okay, what does this mean? This could be taken a lot of different ways. Submission is a really bad word in our society today, is it not? No one wants to be submissive to anybody. So, let's go first with what it means. A wife is to be subject to her own husband. So she's not to be subject to any other person, but her own husband. So that doesn't mean that any man that comes around, she doesn't have to be submissive or subject or a subject of them right, is her own husband, but only her own husband, her one man. Second, Paul did not say, men, subject your wives to yourself. It's very specific how he said it. He did not say, men, subject your own wives to yourself. Submission is hers to give, not man's to take. We have to keep that in mind because our society gets that twisted. In the Christian home, submission is given by the wife, not taken by the man. Paul could have easily written it as men compel your wives to submit to you, because that would have been the culture of the day. Men are to run their homes like tyrants during that time in in history. But instead, he says this. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. It means that there's a certain authority for the home that God has placed on the man, man is to leave his home, and a woman is given the opportunity to submit to his leadership as a picture of healthy gospel teaching. You can turn to Ephesians 5. Don't do that right now. But That's an area that really breaks this down for us. That's what it means. But for today, we need to remember that submission is the wife's to give, not for the husband's to take. And if, a, if your wife is not following your leadership in the home... Maybe you need to see what it is that's causing her to not follow you. This level of faithfulness is only possible with a firm grasp of the healthy doctrine, a clear view of the gospel. Because we are to submit to one another as Christ died for the church. We're to submit ourselves to one another. Alright, now we have a word to younger men. So verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. You know, Paul's not wasting any words here. That's the only word that he has for younger men. But I think it's probably pretty important. So he says, encourage or urge them, help them to be self-controlled. You know, this, this really brings the picture of a coach bringing a team of crazy young men, wrapping his arms around them and says, no, go get it. Let's go. You can do this. That's, that's the urging. That's the, the encouragement that he's saying here. Because young men are so prone to excess. Young men are tending to be driven by enthusiasm, and they like to throw off restraint. So the healthy gospel teaching should harness young men and push them into the direction that they should be going. So a healthy congregation who has young men needs to find ways to encourage them in gospel faithfulness and to teach them that, like a coach. The gospel gives purpose to young people. You can spend your life for one of two kingdoms. You can serve the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man, which one has eternal value. And then verses 7 through 8, it says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So here is Paul's specific guidance to Titus, which really is applicable to all of us who are in leadership. The short of the section basically says, practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. Paul tells Titus that he is to be a model of good works in his teaching, and he does it in three ways: in integrity, in dignity, and sound speech. Integrity carries this meaning of pure teaching. A leader has to teach the fullness of God's word with integrity, not adding to or taking away or mixing any error into it. Dignity, along with teaching with integrity, means that he's supposed to do it with the Latin word, Right? He's to teach with gravitas. He's to teach with dignity. So it's not everything's not a big joke. See, this is a serious thing that we have before us as leaders. And we have to teach with this, the, understanding the weight of God's word. Leaders need to be a model, or need to model the right handling of God's word. James 3 1 has a warning for us that keeps me up at night. It talks about handling the word of truth because you who are teachers will be judged with stricter judgment. That keeps me up at night. That forces me to study this text for hours and hours at a time because I know that I'm going to be judged with greater strictness. And all of us who are parents teaching our children need to understand that we have a higher responsibility. And then finally, he says, the third area to be a model of good works is sound in speech. Titus must speak healthy words. His teaching must be uncorrupted and correct. The words that come out of our mouth, whether in teaching, preaching, counseling, must be sound and healthy, not careless or bad. All right, so let's read verse nine through ten, because this is a fun area. Bond servants, also known as slaves, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing what is good, are not but showing all good faith, so that at everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. So in our context today, we don't have the same type of slavery that they did back then. Slavery back then was kind of an indentured servitude. Yeah, it was almost like a choice for some. It was also Romans would go and conquer other countries and capture slaves and bring them back. But also there was an aspect of importance to a slave that they could go to the right family. So I kind of liken this to military service. Right? You're giving up some of your freedom for the benefits that the Army or the Air Force or wherever brings you. So um, just to illustrate this, when I was uh, E6 in the Army, I had a pretty nice truck, and I would drive it places. And then young kids would come up to me and be like, oh, man, how did you afford that vehicle? I said, well, I was in the Army, or I'm in the Army. And they would be like, oh, man, i got to join the Army because then I can get some money – get out of my, my, my destitute life, because a lot of them were very, very poor, and they said I can get out of this poverty by joining the army, and so in the same way, people during the New Testament times could join a family, could, could be a slave to a family for a certain period of time and get prestige, so a, a teacher who got assigned to a certain family could become prestigious and then buy his freedom and have that family name that's still associated but get into a better position in life. So it's kind of like military service in that it can set you on a better path than you would have been on with better opportunities. But I think a lot of this really applies to employees. The bondservant nature of this really applies to employees. So what kind of obligations is Paul saying that as Christians who live under the employment of someone else, how should we live? So he arranges his commands in a chiastic device— giving the positive and then the counter-negative. So he says this. He says in verse 9, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. It's the same word that's used for younger women. That is to submit to the authority of your boss. But also, not only that, but to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. A Christian employee should seek to be pleasant in his work. Not seeking to cause arguments or conflict. Not pilfering, showing all good faith. You know there's a term in the army that there's only one there was only one thief in the army. Everybody else is just trying to get their stuff back. right? If you think about it, everybody's trying to get their stuff back. Because only one person stole, and then the next person's trying to get their stuff. And it turns into an excuse to, to grab stuff from other units. And what, what it's saying is... What he's saying here about pilfering is that they shouldn't be seeking personal gain by taking things from the office. They shouldn't be seeking personal gain by maybe grabbing a couple extra pencils or sharpening it on their own. Right? Pilfering. And they say that if everybody in the the workplace stops stealing, all these companies would have millions and millions of dollars in surplus because employees are pocketing parts of their, their work. So, being a Christian in the workspace depends on Christian conduct. So, let me give you an example. If I said I found the best barber, but my haircut was like all crazy, what would you think about that? You'd think that's probably not the best barber, right? You'd be like, this guy doesn't know what a good barber looks like. But in the same way, if we say that we go to Syracuse the Baptist Church and we live our lives like we don't go to any church, what's that saying about our church? If we were, say, a lawyer, and we conducted ourselves in one way in the courthouse, and then someone said, oh yeah, that, you know, that guy goes to Syravista Baptist Church, who would come to Syravista Baptist Church? Nobody would want to, because the fruit of our work is evident. The fruit of our lives is evident to everybody else. And if the church is supposed to be the bride of Christ, we're supposed to be adorning it, is what it says. So, we've gone through the whole passage, but now... We're going to go back up, and we're going to go backwards, all right? So if you look at this, I skipped three important sections, all right? It says, in verse 10, it says, so that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So in verse 10, it says, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. I want you to think back to your wedding day. Or think back to a beautiful wedding that you saw on TV and imagine this bride coming down the aisle. And she's adorned with makeup, jewelry, a nice dress, right? She has all these external additions to her. But the value is not what she's adorned with. It's who she is. And in the same way, we get a description in Revelation 21-2. It says, um, let's go ahead and turn to Revelation 21-2, because I think this really helps illustrate our point. And in Revelation 21-2 it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If you go back to Titus, We are to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Our behavior, our lifestyles don't add any value to the gospel. They don't make the gospel more valuable. They don't save us. But what it does is it adorns it. It adds beauty, external beauty to it. So our conduct as Christians should flow from our relationship to Jesus and the right teaching of his word. We don't make ourselves worthy of right standing before God. But the way we act reflects on Christ. The way you behave at work reflects on Christ, the church. When Christians live as we ought to, we show how valuable the word of God is to the world. We say there's something different about those people. All right, turn to verse 8. At the end of verse 8, it says, a sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. The way Christian leaders teach and speak is being watched by the whole world. In an age of social media and smartphones, anything that you say or do can be captured in a second and sent across the world. If we model Christ's teaching, any opponent that seeks to say something evil about us will be put to shame on the last day. Maybe not in this life, but when we stand before Christ. However, if we speak and teach things without integrity, dignity, or sound speech, the world is justified to condemn us. They're justified to condemn us. And it's a sad state of affairs when leaders who are preaching God's word faithfully don't live it out in life. And they guess what? So many have been caught and put down because of it. Verse 5. It says... To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. When we fail to live out our God-given roles in marriage and at home, the word of God is likely to to be considered less than right. The word of God is blasphemed. That's the word that's used there, is blasphemed. Consider nothing more than mere suggestions. This indicates that if we take the teaching of God as mere suggestions rather than the very Word of God, we allow it to be blasphemed by those on the outside. When someone comes up to you and says, I thought you were a Christian, but you're living this way, you're allowing the Word of God to be blasphemed by your actions. So our motive is not, I want to look good for everybody else, but it's the Word of God taught rightly. Healthy Bible teaching produces the fruit of godly living in the lives of Christians. A true church is comprised of people who are born again, who are believers, and submit to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Their lives reflect it. So, if this church is the bride of Christ, and we are on a mission for the world, to show the world who Jesus is, We're a small beacon in a city that is broken. Have you ever driven around or walked around the West End lately? It's pretty sad. Pretty sad state of affairs there. People's lives have been destroyed through drugs and alcohol. People's lives have been destroyed through marital infidelity. People's lives have been destroyed and not following God's word and his design for humankind. So if we are located on this end of Syrah Vista, how can we be a light to those people? My, uh, my, new, my plan is as I leave here and I go through, drive through various parts, I'm going to start praying for the, the houses that I see and the people that live inside there that they would see light of Jesus Christ, and that their lives could be transformed by the gospel. The first step is to pray, because that's the weapon that we have to use. So, how can we be an example of good deeds in chapter 3? Or, sorry, in chapter 2 that we just read. How can we be that example? Well, at the end of chapter 2, 11 through 15, going to tell us the why and what pushes us to live the life that's reflected in, in chapter two. So that's what we're going to study next week. That's like a preview, the how and the why. So the last a couple weeks ago I said I need you to write down the name of one person that you want to share the gospel to, disciple, or encourage. And I said, if you haven't written one down, write it down next week. And I said, now it's your turn to go and share the gospel with that person. So I know what I'm asking of you is very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to get out of our comfort zone and talk to people who do not know who Jesus Christ is. It's not always comfortable. But it's necessary. It's imperative. So if you haven't prayed for someone, start today. If you haven't invited someone to church or to your home for coffee, start this week. If you need resources or help, let me know, and I have tons of resources that we can discuss on how to get started having biblical conversations with your friends. Next week, we'll see how the gospel causes us to live godly lives. Let's pray. Father God, we know that we are not sufficient for these things. We pray, as, as Paul did, that we are the chief of sinners in need of the most grace. Our lives are not perfect. We fail in all of these aspects that were asked of us. Father God, but I pray that you would have this teaching of your word push us to greater lives of fruitfulness for you. Father God, we pray that, that as the gospel permeates our, our lives... That we would be pushed out into evangelism and into the love for the world that we so desperately need to be liked to. That we need to be salt. Father God, we pray that we're salt that has not lost its effectiveness. Father God, I pray for myself that I would have opportunities this week to share the gospel with those that I run into. Father God, be with us, guide us, and keep us. In Jesus' name we pray.